Welcome to ATRA, Voices from the Field. This sustainable agriculture podcast is presented by the National Center for Appropriate Technology with support from USDA Rural Business Cooperative. Hi, this is Rich Myers with NCAT. In this episode, Jeff Shazinski, who's an agricultural and natural resource economist for NCAT's ATRA, the National Sustainable Agriculture Information Service, focuses on the current and future development of organic field crop markets. Jeff, who works out of NCAT headquarters in Butte, Montana, talks with two folks who spend a great deal of time trying to bring what Jeff calls transparency to organic field crop prices and markets. They are Jesse Beauvais and Ryan Corey, who both work with Mercaris, and Mercaris is a national data service company that explores organic, transitional, organic, and non-GMO field crop prices and performs market analytics. Let's listen. Uh, hi, I'm Jeff Shazinski. I'm an agricultural and natural resource economist with NCAT's Atron. Today we're going to talk about organic field crop futures uh, and a discussion with some of the most knowledgeable folks on organic transitioning and non-GMO field crop markets. In this opus, we are talking about the current and future development of organic field crop markets with two folks that spend a great deal of time trying to bring national transparency to organic field crop prices and markets. Organic field crop markets are often referred to as thin markets, which means there are few purchasers of organic field crops and the volume of organic crops traded in the market is relatively low. Market thinness in organic agriculture impacts organic farmers because in those thin markets, price transparency is very limited and supply and demand of organic products do not necessarily adjust efficiently. Thus, product surplus and gluts might be more likely, perhaps creating greater price volatility. Lack of price transparency and volatility makes it difficult to determine organic field crop profitability. The lack of price transparency in organics is demonstrated by the lack of publicly available market information for most organic grains. The two experts that we'll talk today are Jesse Beauvais and Ryan Corey, who work with Macaris, a national data service company that explores organic, transitional organic, and non-GMO field crop prices, as well as performs market analytics and trade identity-preserved field crop production studies. Folks, to begin with, I'm going to give you a first question that will give us a little bit of knowledge about yourself and what you do. So what is your personal history and interest in organic field crop market development? And what's a couple of the pressing issues you see coming in the next few years in organic commodity market development? Uh, Go ahead. Well, Jeff. Either way. Yeah. <laughs> sure. As, uh, as you mentioned, my background is essentially as an economist and a market analyst. Uh, essentially, through and through, that's what I do in my day-to-day work. And so in my previous employment, I worked as an analyst for the conventional sector, focusing on livestock and dairy markets. And so when I saw the lack of information in the organic sector, and I saw the opportunity to come to Macaris and work to fill in that those gaps in information. Uh, it was an opportunity that it was just too good to pass up. And so, you know, the things that I see developing as issues in the organic sector over the coming few years, number one would be development of logistics and supply chains, uh, making sure that those things continue to mature and keep up with the growth of demand, helping to connect producers and purchasers. And then the other side of the market is to continue to develop demand. 
we need consumer demand to continue to grow, to continue to provide those premiums and the impetus to expand domestic markets. Jesse, what do you think? Yeah, so I have always been passionate about food, from the business of agriculture to government policy to even cooking growing up. I didn't grow <laughs> up on a farm. I didn't grow up in a rural area, but my first jobs were in food service. And when I began my undergraduate studies in international relations, I really wanted to specialize in something that was essential and powerful and something that everybody would always need, and that was food. So similar to Ryan, I started off in the conventional world. I worked for ADM. I was a merchandiser. I did logistics for them. Then I moved over to the foundation world, the nonprofit world, and worked with the Howard G. Buffett Foundation. And then Mercaris, similar to Ryan, kind of found me. And the concept behind adding more transparency and adding more information to a previously opaque market was a really exciting opportunity for me. Um, I always, when talking to farmers in the conventional side of things, they'd always ask me, well, you know, $3 for a bushel of corn a good price? And I'd always respond back to them, that all depends on your cost of production. And without those cost of production numbers and, you know, how much you're going to get paid for these commodities, I, I think the industry can never be uh, efficient. So I think the big issues that we see going forward are infrastructure, similar to what Ryan said, um, educating growers and farmers and producers. We need more extension agents. We need more information out in the open for these producers to learn about what it takes to be an organic farmer. And then on top of that, consumer education. I would say the vast majority of consumers don't really understand what the organic label means or the non-GMO label or the traditional or transitional label. Um, has organic commodity production met market demand in the last few years? It's an issue that comes up that I come across quite a bit in my work. Yeah, so an accurate answer to that question is uh, requires a bit of nuance. But generally speaking, from the perspective of organic grains and oil seeds, which is what we focus on here at Macaris, the answer is basically no. Uh, but this, is, this isn't without its upside for producers because this is what contributes to the premium being paid for organic commodities. Uh, although it does contribute to the persistent trend in organic commodity imports we're seeing in the U.S. What yeah, about, the supply um, chain. Oh, oh. Go ahead, go ahead, Jesse. I'm sorry. Uh, the supply chain in the U.S. for organic grains is very immature today, and domestic demand has far surpassed domestic supplyability. Mm-hmm. What about dairy? I know we aren't really talking dairy so much, but I've heard that one of the one of the examples of where actually supply has outrun demand in the organic market it has been dairy. And I noticed uh, that you had some dairy background there, Ryan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I think with respect to the organic dairy sector, um, one of the things that they're facing is something that I touched on earlier. One of the the key hurdles I think organic in general needs to focus on, especially over the next few years, is continuing to expand demand. Uh, Organic dairy demand, the growth in that has slowed, even though it is still a very small section of overall U.S. dairy demand. And so one of the things that I think that side of the industry needs to start focusing on is maybe not quite the export picture yet because I think there's plenty of low-hanging fruit domestically, but starting to expand into other products and starting to expand into dairy derivatives, you know, more butters, uh, maybe into some of your dry dairy proteins for baby formula, things of that nature. But, yeah, absolutely, Mm. that's one area that needs to focus on demand expansion to continue to see industry growth over the next five to ten years. Mm-hmm. And that goes along so with infrastructure again. 
yeah. there's a lack of infrastructure for yeah. organic dairy. Yeah, a lot mm. of these new pieces of equipment that are used to create these value-add dairy products, they're very expensive, and they require pretty high throughput to pay for themselves. So it's, it's one of those things that we need to expand demand to build the infrastructure to build the supply, but without the supply, it's hard to expand demand. It's a little chicken and egg. Yeah, so going back to grains, um, some data suggests that we are importing more organic commodities, particularly grains, oil seeds, and pulses, than we grow domestically. Why can't, again, I guess we're getting back to a similar question, but why can't American organic field crop farmers meet that domestic demand? Well, as I previously mentioned, the U.S. Yeah. is a net importer of organic commodities. Uh, we estimate that over the 17-18 marketing year, the U.S. imported about 16 million bushels of combined whole and cracked organic corn and about the equivalent of 22 million bushels of organic soybeans and organic soybean meal. But the relationship between production and imports for these two commodities is vastly different. If we look back just a couple of marketing years, uh, organic corn imports accounted for about 53% of U.S. organic corn supplies. But U.S. organic production has more than doubled over that time period, and as a result, imports accounted for about 26% of U.S. supplies over the 17-18 market year. Now, we've seen U.S. organic soybean production similarly double like organic corn. However, the volume of production is considerably smaller. The U.S. produces organic corn at about a factor of 5 to 1 to organic soybeans. And as a result, the doubling of growth in organic soybeans hasn't resulted in nearly the growth in volume that we've seen in organic corn which is leaving a much bigger gap for imports to fill. Because of this, not only have U.S. soybean imports continued to grow, but they still account for an astounding 75% of U.S. supplies in the 1718 wow. marketing year. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of reasons why we don't see organic soybeans making the same progress as organic corn. Um, this is partially because organic producers don't like to grow it as a crop due to its poor weed suppression attributes and the minimal amount of organic material it leaves behind after harvest. Also, historically speaking, it has been a far less profitable crop. We have calculated that over the past three marketing years, the organic premium per acre for organic corn has averaged 143% higher than the organic premium for soybeans. And then finally, it's logistically more difficult to move to market. The majority of U.S. organic soybean demand originates from the livestock sector, which typically requires soybean meal, and crushing facilities to produce that meal. And unfortunately, right now, the U.S. organic oilseed crush infrastructure is underdeveloped, and it's partially because there's no demand for organic soybean oil. Mm, I see. So, uh, and also this corn, is that also being, given the success of organic dairy, which obviously needs organic feed too, is, is that also certainly underlying that overall demand and then the need for imports? Yeah, you know, the success of expansion in dairy and livestock in the organic sector has been a big catalyst of growth within the industry. And so if we look at the kind of premiums we're seeing for organic commodities, that has definitely helped to expand domestic production. But this is part of what we see in the discrepancy between, say, the case of corn and soybeans, whereas organic corn, it pretty much flows through the system as a whole commodity. It may be ground up or maybe mixed into a feed ration, but the, the revenue pass-through is essentially one-to-one. -one. But with soybeans, 
the problem with soybeans that we're seeing is that it's just the meal that's being demanded and there's the minimal market for the oil. So the value of pass-through doesn't exist for soybeans like there is for corn. And part of it is the fact that the logistics supply chain is longer and the market is more fragmented and it makes it harder to build that, that demand portfolio to bring those revenues for soybeans. So it, it really depends on which part of the organic that you're looking at, what's going on with trade and what's going on with production in the U.S. It's not really a, a single picture for the whole industry. Right. Jesse? No, no, I agree okay. with everything as Ryan is saying. Okay. All right. <laughs> um, here's a question that gets a little bit maybe in, into the weeds more, but are imported organic grains, pulses, oil seeds obtained at a lower price than is profitable? And I know, of course, this is a little bit broad across domestic organic farming. In other words, is the problem insufficient domestic supply or low import prices? So I would say that in many cases, yes, we see import prices are typically lower than domestically produced prices. But in many cases, uh, imports come with logistic issues and they face stigmas and scrutinies that domestically produced commodities don't. And what we hear from many purchasers is that they are largely sourcing foreign organic supplies as a matter of necessity rather than price. Uh, take the example of organic corn. Even though import prices are routinely cheaper than domestic, the volume of imports has continued to fall and is being offset by domestic production. The, major, the majority perspective we hear from the industry stakeholders is that they would benefit from larger, more re, uh, reliable domestic supplies. However, given the gap between domestic crop production and consumer demand, they're left with a balance that requires imports. Um, Explain your work regarding the development of transitional organic and, and non-GMO or organic non-GMO markets um, in general, because that's kind of a unique thing. I mean, it, I mean, I know from my work that you know one of the barriers to becoming organic is that period of transition, and then the inability during that period of transition to get the the higher price, and so you have to kind of make it through that three years period to get to the to the better that a better market with a better price and uh and and, and i applaud you uh, i haven't seen many people do much attempting at trying to fill that transitional um uh, void for instance well thank you for the applaud it's it's not easy so um Mercaris does two things. We create that data that Ryan and I have been chatting about, but the other thing that we do is we have an auctions platform. So Mercaris really exists to add transparency and liquidity to the IP grains market, so that's organic, non-GMO, transitional. Um, therefore, if there is a demand for transitional grains, or it, we'll be there attempting to create a marketplace. We've had three transitional organic grain auctions, that happened between 2015 and 16, so they've been a while ago, but they re mm -hmm. resulted in premiums for the growers for oats and corn. Um, prices settled at 20 to 50 percent higher than local conventional grain prices in these auctions. So buyers mm -hmm. were motivated to access supply that could be sold as conventional or as non-GMO with organic certification to be achieved soon after. Um, mm -hmm. If somebody is interested in having a transitional um, auction, we just require that the buyers have already engaged with the certifier at some point during that three-year transition period so we know that they're in the middle of transition and aren't just claiming it. 
And then from there, we go out and try to create an option with uh, a bunch of buyers. What do you? How do you guys respond to the? This is an issue I always, always uh, have when I'm going to meetings and things. Inherently certified organic grains are non-GMO. Um, most mm-hmm. people know that. <laughs> we've, we've, many people have tried very hard to impress people that that comes with a certification, and yet there is this separate now. I mean, I noticed just in the grocery store, you see the non-GMO lab, non-GMO verified, and I mean, that's wonderful. I mean, I, I think anything that moves towards greater sustainability is great, but isn't there a sense of somewhat of inherent confusion then, and then how... How would you expect necessarily to be a price differential between those two products when, in a sense, they're the same? <laughs> I was just going to say that comes to one of my very first points in that we need to have better consumer education in, in teaching consumers to understand the difference between organic and non-GMO and potentially the other labels that are out there now, including the USDA's BE label. I think with enhanced consumer education, consumers will have a better idea of picking whatever attributes they want to have in their their foods or their other goods. And hopefully that will translate to more of a premium for farmers and producers that are willing to grow to those different attributes. Ryan, did you have anything else to add there? Uh, No, not too much more to add. Uh, Just to kind of touch on the point that you brought up, uh, really what this all comes down to is sustainability in agriculture. Mm-hmm. And both organic and non-GMO have different aspects to what they, what, what they allow within their production schemes. Sure. And really what, what counts is, what is how, how are the crops being produced and what are, being, what are the concerns in that production? Are, they being, are we considering the impact that it has on rural communities, on soil quality? on all these different aspects that are considered within the realm of sustainability. You know, I think uh, organic and non-GMO both have their tenants and they have their benefits, and I think they, they can both stand as brands because they both kind of fill different niches. Great, thanks. Some, some recent evidence seems to suggest that organic commodity producers prefer, prefer medium to longer-term production contracts particularly for when you're talking about very specialty grains, oil seeds, and again, pulses. Is it true that in your, in your understanding or experience that organic commodity producers tend to contract their production more than non-organic producers? So I'm going to answer this kind of long form. Um, as compared to what we call the conventional marketplace, so those are producers and buyers that are buying genetically modified commodities, organic producers have far fewer tools for marketing crops and protecting them from volatility. So conventional producers have access to highly liquid marketing and hedging strategies like those provided by the Chicago Mercantile Exchange or the CME. And they also, on top of that, have a robust set of regional cash prices that help provide that transparency. So these tools enable buyers and sellers to maximize revenues, manage cash flow, and protect from volatility. In stark contrast to that, the buyers and sellers of organic grain lack these tools, meaning organic transactions carry a large amount of risk for buyers and sellers. To manage this risk, buyers often do lock in those long-term supply contracts with growers. Some of them even last for years we've seen. And these contracts can protect both sides from market volatility, which is a good thing for both sides, but they really dampen liquidity and profitability 
of organic commodities, which we believe slows the growth of the industry. Interesting. Uh, Ryan, what do you uh, anything to add again to that idea? Or <laughs> no, issue? I think uh, I think Jesse pretty succinctly hit the nail on the head there. Essentially, what it comes down to is the fact that the organic commodity, because of the lower volume and because of the lack of market information, it, it has more risk. And so, to mitigate that risk, mm-hmm. that's what we see as a, a tendency to lock in revenue versus playing the market price, which lacks transparency. Right. Although, mm-hmm. um, and and I think uh, Jesse at least knows this, that I've spent about the last 12 years looking at crop insurance, and particularly organic crop insurance. And of course, mm-hmm. and it's improved, improved over the last, uh, you know, 15 years for sure. And even more recently, it's continuing to prove, although there are many issues, but th- that does, you know, they, there's a, for instance, there's a revenue protection policy for organic corn that's quite equivalent to to non-organic and at least there you're getting you know you're providing some risk and I guess I'm going back to is that I've met several organic farmers who in fact one um, really good friend of mine here in Montana says I do not plant anything until I have a contract and a price to sell it for which I don't know if that's normal for organic growers or if he's just an unusual, exceptional case. But I guess that's what I was trying to get at is, is obviously they don't have the same kinds of opportunities to enter different aspects of the same kinds of market. But there is also that, that just the general risk of growing and everything. And it sure is nice to know your price before you, before you plan. You know? Yeah, and I yeah. think as we yeah. see hopefully infrastructure grow in the United States for organic and non-GMO growers. If we see people like Pipeline investing in infrastructure and other ABCDs that are starting to get involved in the organic game, as we see more locations open up and able to put out those price signals, similar to what Mercars is doing on a national and a regional level, I think you're going to have farmers feel more comfortable with maybe contracting half of their crops and leaving the other half for you know, spot sales or, you know, erecting bins and keeping them in their bins to try to catch market fluctuations. Mm -hmm. But without those price signals, it makes sense for a farmer to do a long-term contract because that's the only way they know they're going to get paid for it. Right. Some have suggested that organic commodity markets must follow a a different future than the non-organic markets. Organic means, in some sense, sustainability, but sustainability might also mean greater price and market transparency, as well as the develop of, of new kinds of supply chains that engage additional issues such as equity and fairness and transparency through the entire system, which my wife, who's a computer scientist, been talking about blockchaining and transparency in supply ah. chains. And it seems to be a very mm-hmm. new hot topic. But um, um, do you see this as a distinct future because uh, you know it's such a young industry in a sense still for organic commodity markets that we might move in these more interesting novel directions. Uh, you know, I think uh, we as Macars don't we're, we we wouldn't be so presumptuous as to say where we think the industry should go. Um, <laughs> we are an objective third party that is here solely for the purpose of providing market information and insight. I really think how the industry develops over the next 10, 15, 20 years will really be dependent upon the people who have a lot more skin in the game than we do, the the producers and the buyers who are operating within this sphere. And so I think what you'll see is it will develop in ways that fill their needs as the market moves forward. 
I would agree with what Ryan said. I, I really think that the future of organic commodities is lo- largely dependent upon what people are willing to invest in it right now. And that goes for producers and buyers and financial services and universities and everybody up and down the supply chain. Without investment and interest in education, I honestly think this industry is going to founder. Well, thank you. That um, wraps up for today. I want to, again, thank you very much for taking some time out of your busy days to, to join us. Thanks for listening to ATRA, Voices from the Field. Depending on the platform you're listening to us on, be sure to rate us and leave a review or comment. If you have any questions about this subject, you can contact Jeff Shazinski directly via email at jeffs at incat.org. That's J-E-F-F-S at N-C-A-T dot org. If you have questions for Jesse or Ryan, you can get in touch with them at the Mercaris website, which is www.mercaris.com. That's www.mercaris.com. Also, we'll post links to related ATRA resources in the notes below this podcast. And that will include Understanding Organic Pricing and Costs of Production, which is an ATRA publication that's currently being revised, and the revision will be ready soon. When it is ready, you'll be able to find it on our website, which is www.atra.incat.org. That's www.attra.ncat.org. And please call ATRA with any and all of your sustainable agriculture questions at 1-800-346-9140 or email us at askanag at incat.org. That's A-S-K-A-N-A-G at N-C-A-T dot org. Our two dozen specialists can help you with a vast array of topics, everything from farm planning to pest management, from produce to livestock and soils to aquaculture. You can get in touch with them and find our other extensive and free sustainable agriculture publications, webinars, videos, databases, and other resources at our website, which is, once again, www.atra.incat.org, www.attra.ncat.org. We'll catch you next week, and until then, keep on farming.